Welcome to the Littler International Employment Law Podcast Series. Conversations for the multinational employer on issues impacting their global business. Hi, I am Kunde Bischop and I am a shareholder at Reliance Litter in Belgium. We are specialized in advising employers on employee relations, including questions relating to payroll and discrimination. In the run-up to the Belgian Equal Pay Day, we wanted to discuss some specific aspects thereof, and to do so, I am joined by my colleague Ine Machiels. The month of March is indeed marked by several events highlighting the position of female employees. Earlier this month, on March the 8th, we celebrated International Women's Day. The Belgian Equal Pay Day is going to take place on March 27. This gives us the perfect occasion to discuss the subject of equal pay in Belgium. Ine, this year the Belgian Equal Pay Day is determined at March 27. What is the Equal Pay Day and how is it determined? Well, according to the most recent figures of the Belgian Institute for the Equality of Women and Men, the average gross annual salary of female employees is 23.7% less than that of their male colleagues. Now, this implies that women have to work a little less than three months extra to acquire the same annual salary compared to men. To attract the attention of the public to this issue, interest groups organized a Belgian Equal Pay Day on March 27, 2020. This is a symbolic date on which women would have earned the same income as men in 2019. Multiple elements contribute to this salary gap. An important element is that women more often work part-time than men. But this does not fix the gap. When comparing the salary based on fictional full-time employment for all employees, the Institute for the Equality computed that the salary gap amounts to 9.6%. Next to the difference in working time, other elements explain the difference in salary. For example, women often work in industries that are traditionally less well-paid, such as the, the care sector or the education sector, and there are less women in higher management positions. Even when taking these elements into account, it remains a reality, unfortunately, that there are women who receive less salary solely based on their gender. Does Belgian legislation impose rules to counter this? On a European level, the principle of equal pay was already introduced in 1957 by the Treaty of Rome to avoid a competitive disadvantage for EU member states that already obliged their companies to pay their female employees the same salary as men. In Belgium, a national collective bargaining agreement of 1975 establishes that every difference based on gender should be abolished for the same work. Employers are obliged to add the text of this collective bargaining agreement as an annex to the work rules. This is a mandatory document that can be compared to an employee handbook. As every employee has to receive a copy of the work rules, they are also informed of their rights to equal pay. More in general, Belgium has a specific anti-discrimination act to tackle discrimination based on gender. Are there any specific measures that have to be taken by companies to implement this principle of equal pay? Yes, measures have to be taken on three levels. On the interprofessional level, by the different industries and by the employer itself. On an interprofessional level, social partners have to negotiate measures to tackle the pay gap. Secondly, the industries have to ensure that their wage brackets are gender neutral. 
And thirdly, companies have to split up the salary data in their social balance sheet per gender. In addition to that, every two years, companies that employ 50 employees or more on average are obliged to draft an analysis of their salary structure to verify whether the company's salary policy is gender neutral. The company has to use a template form of the government. There are two versions, a limited form for companies with 50 to 100 employees and a more extensive form for companies with 100 employees or more. The analysis has to be discussed with the Works Council or, in absence thereof, the trade union delegation. If they believe that this is necessary, the Works Council or trade union delegation can decide to draft an action plan for a gender-neutral salary policy. This action plan should contain specific goals, instruments to reach those goals, and the time frame for their realization. The plan should also determine how the company's progress will be followed up. Finally, in addition to the data in the social balance and the analysis report, companies with 50 employees or more on average can appoint a member of their personnel as mediator. The role of the mediator is to assist the company, the management and the employees in the application of the pay gap regulations. So if I understand correctly, the Belgian legislature imposes several rules to force employers to pay their employees the same salary for the same work. However, if something would nevertheless go wrong and an employee would receive a lower salary solely because of his or her gender, what can he or she do? Well, as already mentioned, Belgium has a specific anti-discrimination act on gender discrimination. Similar to the General Anti-Discrimination Act and the Anti-Discrimination Act prohibiting discrimination based on so-called race, the Gender Act is the implementation of a European directive in Belgium. More precisely, it concerns a directive of 1976, which was updated in 2002. Belgium undertook a first attempt to implement the updated Gender Directive and the other European discrimination directives in 2003 by introducing a general anti-discrimination act. However, this general act was partially annulled by the Constitutional Court in 2004, forcing the Belgian legislator to redo its homework. This resulted in three anti-discrimination acts, namely a general anti-discrimination act, an anti-racism act and the gender act. Of course, it is the latter that interests us today. In general, this Gender Act prohibits any less favorable treatment that is directly based on someone's gender. Unfortunately, when people are discriminating someone based on their gender, they are usually not very open about it. Often, criteria are used that are closely linked to a gender without referring to the gender itself. This is why Gender Act equates certain criteria with gender. This includes pregnancy, childbirth, breastfeeding, medically assisted fertilization, fatherhood, and the so-called co-motherhood. This last criterion refers to the situation of the partner in a lesbian couple who is not the biological mother of the child. Act also assimilates gender reassignment with gender. Furthermore, the Gender Act also forbids unfavorable treatments that are indirectly based on gender, insofar as they cannot be justified by a legitimate cause, and insofar the measures to reach this cause are adequate and necessary. As you can see, the protection under the Gender Act is broader than gender in the strict sense. Now, if someone is confronted with an unfavorable treatment based on gender in an employment context, he or she can file a complaint. 
This can first of all be done by using internal procedures applicable within the company. The individual may also get in touch with the Social Inspectorate or the Institute for the Equality of Women and Men. This is a governmental organization that supervises the compliance with gender equality and combats gender discrimination in all aspects of society. It also advises the government and performs research on the subject. Institute is solely specialized in gender discrimination, whereas UNIA, that's another institution, fulfills a similar role where it concerns other discrimination grounds. Finally, the employee can introduce a claim before the competent court. In principle, this will be the labor tribunal. By introducing a claim, the employee can request the unfavorable treatment to be stopped or rectified. If this claim is granted, the court can impose a penalty payment to enforce the employer to enter discrimination or order the publication of the judgment at the premises of the company or even in the newspapers. However, a victim of gender discrimination can also claim the payment of an indemnity to compensate the damage caused by this discrimination. I can imagine that it is difficult to prove which damage was caused and even more difficult to quantify it. Can you maybe give us some pointers on how this is done? Well, valuing the damage caused by discrimination is indeed difficult. The Belgian legislator was aware of this problem and gave the victim the choice. Either he or she bases his or her claim on common civil law, which means that the victim has to prove the damage caused by the unlawful action of the other party, or, second option, a lump sum indemnity can be claimed. This lump sum indemnity corresponds to six months' gross salary. The salary that is taken into account to compute this indemnity includes the base salary and all benefits granted to the employee, such as the company car, insurances, meal vouchers, and the like. However, if the employer can prove that the unfavorable treatment was also based on non-discriminatory grounds, this lump sum indemnity is decreased to three months' gross salary. The indemnity for discrimination is qualified as moral damages. This means that no social security contributions are due on it. Insofar as the indemnity was granted by a court and thus not in the framework of the settlement, the tax authorities may accept that the indemnity is also not subject to taxation. A victim of gender discrimination can file a complaint or claim an indemnity as compensation for the damage caused. I believe it goes without saying that an employer who is accused of discrimination is not going to be happy about it. Surely, the employee puts itself at risk of becoming subject to retaliation measures. Yes, but the Gender Act anticipated on this. An employee who filed a complaint for gender discrimination enjoys a specific protection. This protection does not only apply to employees who introduced a claim before the court. It also applies to employees who filed a complaint through internal procedures or through the Social Inspectorate or the Institute for the Equality of Women and Men. The Gender Act prohibits the employer to adopt any adverse measure towards the employee who filed the complaint, unless if this measure is based on reasons that do not relate to the complaint. The Gender Act lists some examples of such adverse measures that are not allowed. It does not only include the termination of the employment contract, well, it is quite clear that this is an adverse measure, but also the unilateral modification of the terms and conditions of employment or adverse measures taken after the termination of employment. 
So this includes, for example, spreading negative information about the employee after he or she left the company. If the employer violates this specific protection, the employee is entitled to the same indemnity as the one we discussed earlier. He or she can thus claim an indemnity based on the actual damage caused or a lump sum indemnity corresponding to maximum six months. Employers should clearly be careful when imposing measures to employees who filed a complaint based on the Gender Act. But can you clarify when a measure is actually considered to be related to the complaint? Well, when an adverse measure is taken within 12 months following the complaint, the burden of proof will be reversed. It will be up to the employer to prove that the measure was taken for reasons that do not relate to the complaint. If the employee introduced a claim before the court, this period is extended until three months after the final judgment is rendered in the employee's court case. After the period of reverse burden of proof, it will be the employee who will have to prove that the measure taken was related to his or her complaint. Now, is it possible that a violation of this dismissal protection also qualifies as the violation of another legal provision? I believe that although this is not directly related to our discussion on equal pay, separate legislation prohibits the dismissal of an employee for reasons related to pregnancy or motherhood. A violation of this dismissal protection entitles the employee to a protection indemnity of six months salary. Can this protection indemnity be combined with the protection indemnity under the Gender Act? It is indeed possible that a dismissal related to the employee's pregnancy also qualifies as a violation of the Gender Act. Although legislation does not exclude the combination of both protection indemnities, case law generally states that they both relate to the same protected criterion and that both acts aim at preventing discrimination based on gender. As the two indemnities can thus be considered to cover the same damage, case law does not allow it to accumulate them. Employees also tend to combine their discrimination claim with a claim for a so-called manifestly unreasonable dismissal. This is a dismissal that is not based on reasons related to the employee's suitability or behavior or the company's necessities and to which a normal, prudent employer would never have decided. A manifestly unreasonable dismissal entitles an employee to an indemnity of 3 to 70 weeks salary, depending on how unreasonable the dismissal is. However, the National Collective Bargaining Agreement that regulates the subject explicitly states that the indemnity for manifestly unreasonable dismissal cannot be combined with other indemnities except for the severance payments and a few other indemnities. It can thus be argued that this indemnity cannot be combined with the discrimination indemnity. Nevertheless, it may be combined with certain other end-of-contract indemnities. We are, for example, aware of cases in which the discrimination indemnity was combined with the severe protection indemnity of an employee representative. Thank you, Ina. Employers should therefore keep in mind that there may be significant financial consequences in case of non-compliance with this legislation. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you would have any questions regarding discrimination, salary policies, or any other employment-related subjects, feel free to reach out to us via podcasts at littler.com or by sending an email to Ine or myself. 
The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.